This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast again. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with Dr. Ronald Epstein his recent work, Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. Dr. Epstein is the professor of family medicine, psychiatry, and oncology at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Dr. Epstein, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Dr. Epstein's full bio is posted, of course, on the podcast website. For this interview, I'll dispense with our usual or my usual background statement. So uh, let's just get uh, right into this. Um, uh, Dr. Epstein, in the beginning of your work, uh, you state that, uh, actually it's at page 12, medicine is in crisis, and you provide an explanation. Uh, so uh, on background, why do, you, why do you make that statement? Um, I think it's in crisis because what physicians and other clinicians find themselves doing has gotten further and further away from the reasons that they went into uh, medicine and healthcare in the first place. That is, um, we find ourselves spending more and more time on computers rather than face-to-face -face with patients, more and more time satisfying uh, administrative demands, and also, I think, being asked to, um, or I guess it's having a result of us feeling more disconnected from ourselves uh, as clinicians. And I think that manifests itself as various forms of distress and burnout, uh, fragmentation, um, and, and a sense of disconnection, disconnection from one's calling. Uh, you're, you're aware that... Um, According to some surveys, about half of the physician workforce is burned out, and that's certainly a frightening statistic. And all this uh, obviously has consequences for the quality of care uh, delivered to patients. Well, you, you know, if you medicine has never been an easy profession. We're always dealing with suffering, and and sometimes we can do something about it, and sometimes we can't. And the thing that gives gives you a sense of meaning and purpose is is one's connection to the, one's work. And if you're not connected to your work, then you're not paying attention in the way that you need to uh, to help patients. Okay, thank you. You do know, uh, in, at least in two instances in the work, the number of medical errors. Uh, that patients suffer annually, according to a well-noted, uh, cited uh, IOM study of several years ago. Let's go into, then, uh, the motivation for this uh, book, again, Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. What were you trying to achieve, or what was your goal of writing this book? My goal was really to try to map out what makes uh, a, a good doctor great, and also what we're really looking for in the healthcare that we um, that 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 we seek when we're, when we're feeling ill and or somehow um, things aren't quite right with our sense of health and our sense of ourselves, and I I've seen a lot of people outline what the problems might be, but without a really clear notion of what excellence looks like. 
And for me, it, it has to do with how well you know yourself as a person, as a healer, as a professional. And that self-awareness and ability to be mindful and present is, is something that everyone recognizes as part of a good doctor, but no one, at least I hadn't seen anyone who really articulated it clearly enough that's relevant for the current context in medical care. There have been voices in the past who've, who've spoken to these issues, but now the, 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 the landscape is different. Okay, thank you. So let's get into this issue of mindfulness and unpacking that. You've been writing on this subject for a long while. Uh, you note uh, an initial JAMA essay in 1999. I've read others. You had appear in Family Systems and Health, again in JAMA, Patient Education and Counseling, the Journal of Continuing Education in the Health Professions, etc. So let's get into what exactly mindfulness is. You do note its ability to be self-aware, attentive, present. You talk about deep listening and you note the biopsychosocial model or approach. But explain to me in your terms, what, how do you understand this uh, subject? Um, well, I think being mindful, first of all, is a process. It's not a state. No one's mindful all the time. Um, and I, I, I would say that while some people are able to, to move towards mindfulness with greater facility, I think we all have that as a capacity within us. And mindfulness is the quality to uh, observe uh, uh, ourselves while we're actually engaged in our our own clinical practice as physicians. But I think it goes deeper than that. It, it really is um, finding a space between stimulus and response. Uh, this, this is taken from a quote uh, uh, um, from Viktor Frankl. He, he talked about the, the ability to be, uh, to flourish and to, to experience freedom as being able to find a space between stimulus and response. So something happens to you. Something happens in the operating room. Something happens with a patient. And we all have an initial reaction, um, but that reaction may or may not um, embody what we think of as the ideal of what we'd like to achieve. And so just finding those little spaces, those little pauses, where we can pay attention to our own thoughts and feelings during everyday work for me, is mindfulness. And then that gives you the choice about how you want to respond to those moments. It involves being curious, not only about patients and, and their illnesses, but also being curious about oneself. So if I find myself feeling annoyed during a particular patient visit, rather than just blaming it on the patient or some characteristic of them, saying, well, what's, what's happening inside me that's, that's, that's leading to that annoyance? Or I make a mistake or I'm feeling bereft after a loss of a patient. Just having some ability to, uh, to check in with myself on an ongoing basis. That for me is mindfulness. Uh, and another component of mindfulness is, is, uh, is being present. And, and patients know when you're present for them, when you're really there. Um, it's, it's like a musical performance. You can really tell when the performers are, are, are really present, when they're connecting with the audience, and when they're just kind of going through the motions. And I think all of us as healers, and probably, you know, no matter what the profession that you're, that you're engaged in, when you feel present, you feel better about yourself, and also um, your, your patients really can see the difference. 
Thank you. You mentioned, amongst others, Donald Schoen's work of self-reflective practice. So part of this is understanding yourself in what you're doing real time, and as you so state, being present. So it's about understanding yourself and then also engaging with the patient. Otherwise, you see in the literature, this is discussed as the therapeutic relationship. Let me ask you... Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. So for me, it goes a little deeper than that, um, in that... It, I think that mindfulness is not not the same as just understanding yourself. Understanding to me means kind of an intellectual formulation. I'm this kind of person. I'm that kind of person. But I, I think that mindfulness is really experiencing in the moment. So it's it's not um, it's not necessarily putting yourself into a category or diagnosing yourself, but it's really just uh, experiencing whatever happens to be going on in your mind, being aware of it and being curious about it. I don't know if I'm being clear by that, but it's really more about the direct experience than any formulation that you might make of it. Okay, thank you. In, in the book, you mention uh, uh, meditation repeatedly and borrowing from what you've learned uh, from meditation. What's the, what, what's the relationship there? Well, you, you know, it, I, I, I didn't come to medicine through a very direct path. <laughs> And, right. and 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 so um, when I was uh, a, a teenager and in college, I was very interested in two things. One is music, and I was um, heading towards uh, being a performing musician. And the second was um, was Buddhist philosophy. And and at a certain point, when I was nineteen, I, I left college to live uh, at a, at a Zen center in California, not knowing if I would ever if I would stay there for the rest of my life or just for a little while. And uh, I didn't stay for the rest of my life. I stayed for a little while. I maintained some contact and continued a meditation practice, actually, to this day. So for me, the the, the aha moment was realizing that when I was practicing at my, at, at, at my best as a doctor, when I was really fully present and attentive, that was the same state of mind that I'd be in uh, or, or trying to achieve uh, during through meditation, and it was also the same state of mind that I would be in when I really felt that a musical performance was going uh, was going the way that I wanted to, just being being fully present, being there. And so uh, that moment hit me sometime in 1997, 98, and I just tried to make sense of it. Just tried to figure out how to communicate this to my professional colleagues without seeming too exotic or new age or and without using um, uh, obscure terminology that they might not be be familiar with so for me it took it took uh, it took a year or two to try to translate that idea into terms that really every healthcare practitioner could understand and that's what led to that article that I published in the Journal of the American Medical Association and to my surprise, first of all, I wrote the article thinking that they would just reject it and send it back to me. Um, and and fortunately, I encountered an editor who really saw potential. And it went back and forth to the journal seven times, seven different revisions. And she was extraordinarily helpful in helping me craft the article further. And then once it was published, I, I got hundreds of letters and emails and, and correspondence from from physicians and, and other health professionals around the world saying basically that this is what they've 
found to value in medicine, but no one had been able to articulate it. And and for me, that was totally life-changing. So you ask why it then took me uh, uh, 18 years to write a book about it. <laughs> and uh, and um, I, boy, it, it, um, I think it took a while for the ideas to mature and also for me to find a voice that would speak more directly to the general public. Okay, thank you. Throughout the book, you offer numerous examples of patients uh, you've attended. And let me ask if you could uh, provide an illustrative or illustrative example, and particularly to, relevant to, you note, uh, you, you, you do discuss this issue of suffering, uh, mm-hmm. and that uh, clinicians, providers, oftentimes are, are not attuned to the extent the patient suffers. You say that you systematically search the medical literature for articles that explore how physicians can and should respond to suffering. You said you found a mere six research studies. So relevant or related to a patient example, I'd be particularly interested in how mindfulness uh, gave you a greater appreciation understanding of the patient's suffering. Um, I, it was really fa- fascinating to me that no, given that medicine is really about the relief of suffering, that there are so few articles directed towards how do you relieve suffering. Mm-hmm. In the palliative care literature, there's a bit, uh, but um, you know, there, there are lots of articles about pain, and there are lots of articles about depression. But suffering is much more global than that, and often hard to put into categories. Sometimes um, when, I'm, uh, when I ask patients who are at the end of life what's the worst part of their suffering, um, they'll say uh, that it's financial issues, or that uh, they won't attend an important family event, or they might say it's pain, or they might say that it separates them uh, that they can't be so close to a relative who lives far away. So it's really hard for me to predict, and for any doctor to predict, even when you think you know what the source of patient suffering is, um, you usually don't unless you ask. And uh, so, um, and this comes out in situations where doctors can't fix things easily. I mean, we feel very comfortable fixing things. You know, someone has a symptom, you give them a medication or you do a procedure of some sort, and the the whole intent of that is to make that um, that particular disease or 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 uh, dysfunction somehow go away. But the number of times you can really do that um, is quite limited in medicine. Most of the illness that I deal with as a family physician is chronic, and you manage things and it doesn't go away. And there are a lot of things that we just simply can't explain and don't understand. So, uh, you know, 30% of patients seeing a cardiologist will leave without a diagnosis because we can't explain why they're having chest pain. And uh, and people with back pain, the majority we can't explain. And people with headaches, we can't explain. So I, I became really fascinated, uh, this is back in the 90s, um, with th- those patients who have illnesses that we can't explain and how we adopt a stance, a healing stance with those patients. So when you can't fix something, what do you do? Um, and uh, and so, so part of it has to do with being present, of witnessing that suffering. And you think that just by being there and not doing anything, that patients might be dissatisfied. But the, the, revert, the opposite is completely true. Um, that, that is that, that often people want to be understood and known on their own terms, and that in and of itself is healing. And so, um, so in particular, I had a patient who um, had a 
rheumatologic condition. She had um, what appeared to be initially to be fibromyalgia, which you know is is uh, an illness that can cause pain in various parts of the body, but usually you can't find anything on an X-ray, and uh, and you can't find anything if you did a biopsy and the blood tests are normal. So it can cause a lot of dysfunction, but we don't see any structural abnormalities with that. But then after a while, she began to show joint destruction, and over a period of years had hip replacements, knee replacements, surgeries on her elbows and, and shoulders. Basically, she's had, I think, about 20 orthopedic procedures, and each one unfortunately ended up with numerous complications. So so here's someone who's suffering, has has an illness that we can't really explain. Medications have been somewhat ineffective. Surgery has involved multiple complications. So as clinicians, we're doing, trying to do good, but then sometimes doing harm. And um, and what makes what can make the difference for someone in a situation like that? Um, and and so sometimes witnessing and providing a listening ear. But what happened with this particular patient was that um, she had been a, a social worker and also uh, a cra- uh, did uh, some crafts. Actually, she was a, she was a jewelry maker uh, by by hobby and did really beautiful stuff. And 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 for her, the the worst part of her suffering was that she was uh, unable because of the arthritis in her hands to to make jewelry. And um, so more so than the pain and the medical mishaps, that was the thing that really stuck with her. So um, eventually, I think that she um, and I together tried to craft a way in which she could live a life that she would find meaningful, recognizing that the symptoms and illness that she had might never go away. And and so that that's yet another way of dealing with suffering, of helping people transform their perspective and their expectation so that life can still have meaning and a sense of purpose, um, but maybe in a new way. Uh, so recognizing that you can't go backwards, you can't go back to the person you were, but that you can create a new identity. And that's exactly what she did. Um, and so um, it doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen maybe even half the time, but but recognizing when people have the potential to um, experience illness not only as something that is uh, undesired and destructive, but also something that could potentially lead to a sense of personal transformation. So she's gone back to work as a social worker, derives some clear benefit from that, but also spends a fair bit of time helping other patients who have undiagnosed and serious illnesses like her own. Um, and that in and of itself gives her a sense of purpose. So um, the reason I brought that example up in, in, in the book is that these are the kinds of patients that, that, that doctors don't like, um, that um, they, don't, they don't fall into a category that we can recognize. We don't feel that we're effective in the terms that we have. But sometimes by asking and inquiring of patients what gives them meaning in their lives and where the major source of suffering is for them uh, allows them then to move past that. I see this in people who are dying as well. I mean, as a palliative care doctor, I take care of people at the end of life. You'd think that everyone at the end of life would be depressed. They're not. Um, And that's because people are able to, to some degree, find some sense of purpose and meaning, even though um, life isn't dealing them what they wished it had.
Thank you. So this example reinforces your commenting that this involves practicing presence, deep listening, and uh, being compassionate. And, you, and by, deep, by, by, by deep listening, I mean listening to someone on their terms rather than trying to necessarily put them into a category. Mm-hmm. Now, as doctors, we have to categorize things. You know, someone comes to me with chest pain. I need to decide pretty quickly if the pain is coming from their heart or if they just have a bruised rib. And so we have to do that. But we also have to let go of that because uh, the um, the pain that someone is having uh, may be different than the pain that we can diagnose. Mm-hmm. Yes, they need a code, right? Yeah, it's a billing code ultimately. Let me let uh-huh. me. Suffice to say, I would I would think you'd agree this is all an art. You you do talk uh-huh. use the word pronesis, uh, the Aristotelian word. You do say yeah. that you that you have a year long program you teach in mindful practice. Can you tell me a bit about that? Uh, yeah, we have a number of programs, and the one that, ones that we are doing most commonly now are shorter programs than that, that some of which are residential, the kind of retreat-like programs. But, um, but we've got programs for medical students and residents and nurses and practicing physicians, a really a wide variety of health professionals. And we teach them to meditate. And, uh, and using various different kinds of meditation techniques, it allows them to understand their own inner lives a little bit better. Uh, we also teach them to engage in, in mindful dialogues in which they try to practice this quality of listening and presence that we've been talking about for the past few minutes. And, and I believe that it can be practiced and learned. And perhaps the most powerful thing of this work is that, that people develop a sense of community. They develop a sense that, um, that there are others who are trying to find meaning in their work and really the essence of what it means to be a healer. And that sense of community and solidarity is incredibly powerful. We studied this program in, in one of the year-long courses that we, that we created among primary care physicians and showed that it, it really made a difference. We surveyed them every three months uh, and found that they uh, became less distressed, less burned out, um, experienced more positive emotion, and also became more empathic, more interested in patients as people, and and became more resilient. They, um, we did personality tests to see uh, and, and measure their, their sense of resilience and their sense of capacity, and that also improved. But the thing that really stood out for, uh, for, our, for our group, and I, I work with a group of uh, other physicians here teaching mindful practice, um, was that um, people, aside from learning specific skills about how to listen to themselves and others, uh, this sense of community was really fundamental. They really felt isolated, and by um, the support that they got from being part of a community of, of healers who are trying to know themselves better, that was one of the most powerful and transformative uh, aspects of the program. So through helping others, we know you actually help yourself. Um, and vice versa. Right, yes. Yeah. You, you, my, my final question is, you talk, you use the phrase throughout the book, slowing down. Uh, however, obviously, in an industry that is oftentimes uh, profit-driven, that's, that's difficult to do. So 
I'm, I'm second guessing the answer here, which would be uh, more greater attending would translate, I'm assuming you would argue, to improved quality uh, and more efficient care. So um, I have a colleague who is a liver transplant surgeon in um, uh, or a liver surgeon in Toronto, and she's observed uh, surgeons in the operating room and has really found those. I mean, everyone has to be an autopilot and go quickly. I mean, if you take if you took your time in the operating room, then you know operations would take too long and it wouldn't be a good thing. But um, but what she noticed about the real master surgeons was that they'd be going along very quickly and then something would happen and they'd slow down. You know, there might be a slight anatomic variant that was unfamiliar to them, or there was a, a slight, uh, um, uh, you know, a part of the surgery that required more delicacy and, and more concentration. And the really good surgeons would, would slow down when they should, and the ones who were not so good and still learning uh, would uh, would keep going at full speed. It's like going full speed over a speed bump. And, and it, in, you know, the difference was subtle, but um, in debriefing the surgeons afterwards, the real master surgeons could see those speed bumps coming up just a little bit sooner. And the same thing's true for me in, um, in my practice as a family physician, that um, I do have to go quickly because patients are scheduled every, every 20 minutes and, and there's a lot of administrative work to be done as well. So, but, but every once in a while, something just triggers, it's kind of like a little hair trigger to, to say, okay, this is really important. I need to slow down. And it may be that someone mentioned that they didn't feel quite right when they walked up a flight of stairs. Um, or it might just be the um, noticing a slight tremor on one side of the body that wasn't present on the other. I mean, these are sometimes small observations that you make. But, uh, but then you kind of stop and change gears and, and, and change the direction of your questioning. And it may not look from the outside like slowing down, but from the inside it feels that way. And um, and it's not that you're you're always working in slow motion, but you know when to use your how to use your time more wisely. Okay, thank you. Sadly, we're already at our time boundary, Dr. Epstein. So I do appreciate this brief overview of your work. I will note, uh, along with the volume, uh, your accompanying uh, periodical literature uh, when I post this for those interested in reading further. So. With that, I'll just note, again, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.